Okay, we're rolling. So this is our Visuddhimagga session. Starting on page 63 of the Path of Purification, number 31. The way we've been doing it is just kind of reading down the line, um, just alphabetically down the line. So, Buddha Dharma, if you are prepared, if you could begin reading with 31, and then we'll just go right down the line after you. Okay, but Buddha Dharma has a problem with his audio, and he's echoing us. So, that's a sign that he's certainly not on. He or she is certainly not on push to talk, which would be nice. But it's also a sign. Maybe you, at the very least, you should be using a headset. Uh, otherwise, the sound that we make r- uh, echoes through your speakers. Okay, so we'll, we'll just keep you muted until that's all set. Dar, if you could pick up with 31. The house-to-house seekers practice is undertaken with one of the following statements. I refused a greedy alms round or I undertake the house-to-house seekers practice. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to uh, jump in there and and sort of um, refresh everyone's memory as to where we are. We're talking about the 13 ascetic practices, which are sort of the Buddha's word or Buddhist word on... Uh, extra um, practices one can undertake to support one's meditation. If if one feels like one's practice is lacking or one's effort is flagging, one can undertake one of these practices. I mean, they're mostly monastic, but they can be used as an example for lay life as well, a general example. Uh, but they're means of augmenting and empowering your practice. So we're on number, I don't know, number three maybe? No, more than that, right? What is this, number four? Number 31. Yeah, but out of the 13, I think this maybe is number four. There's an IV there, which might be four. Anyway, it's oh, one of yes, them. four. Okay, thank you. Now the house-to-house seeker should stop at the village gate and make sure that there is no danger. There, If there is danger in any street or village, it is allowable to leave it out and wander for alms elsewhere. When there is a house door or a street, or a village where he regularly gets nothing at all. He can go past it, uh, not counting it as a village, but wherever he gets anything at all, it is not allowed uh, subsequently to go past there and leave it out. This bhikkhu should enter the village early so that he will be able to leave out any inconvenient place and go elsewhere. But if people 
who are giving a gift of a meal in a monastery or who are coming along the road, take his bowl and give alms food. It is allowable. And as this bhikkhu is going along the road, he should, when it is the time, wander for alms in any village he comes to and not passed it by. If he gets nothing there or only a little, he should wander for alms in the next village in order. These are the directions for it. Thank you, Dar. Um, DPW, could you read 32? Hi, is my sound working? Hello? Yeah, we can, we can hear you. You're just a little quiet. Can you speak up a bit? Yeah, is that better? Much better, thank you. And now I've lost the page. Give me a moment. Oh, it's okay. Page 63, towards the bottom, number 32. Okay. This too has three grades. Herein, one who is strict does not take arms brought from before or brought from behind or brought to the refectory and given there. He hands over his bowl at a door. However, for in this ascetic practice there is none equal to the elder Mahakasapa. Yet an instance in which even he handed over his bowl is mentioned. CUD 29. The medium one takes. The medium one takes what is bought from before and from behind and what is bought to the refectory, and he hands over his bowl at the door, but he does not sit waiting for arms. Thus he conforms to the rule of the strict arms fooled eater. The mild one sits waiting for arms to be bought that day. The ascetic practice of these three is broken as soon as the greedy alms round starts by going only to the houses where good alms food is given. This is the breach in this instance. Thank you. Glenn, can you read 33? The benefits are these. He is always a stranger among families. And is like the moon. He abandons avarice without families. He is compassionate impartially. He avoids the dangers in being supported by a family. He does not he does not delight in invitations. He does not hope for meals to be brought. His life conforms to the principles of fewness of wishes and so on. Thank you, Glenn. We're, um, we are on page 64, uh, starting out with section 34 for anybody who's just joined us. Um, Jess, are you able to read 34? I 
I think just just arrived, maybe is uh, still working with the microphone to get it sorted out. Laszlo, can you read 34? Uh, sure. Uh, can you hear me right? Oh, yes, very good. Oh, yes, very good. Okay. So 34, the monk who at each house his begging plies is moonlight, ever new to families, nor does he grudge to help all equally, free from risks of house dependency. Would the self-indulgent round forsake and roam the world at will, the while to make his downcast eyes range a yoke length before, then let him wisely seek from door to door. This is the commentary on the undertaking, directions, grades, breach, and benefits in the case of the house-to-house seeker's practice. So if it's not clear exactly what's being explained here, it's... Um, the idea of not skipping and not choosing the houses which one goes to seeking alms, because in India it would um, it would have been a, it was a common practice to offer food to ascetics and monks of all religions or all all lineages. They weren't really considered religions, but um, it would become common to to go first to the places where you knew you were going to get the kind of food that you wanted or where you were going to get lots of food or the, the easiest places to go. And I mean, this isn't really that ascetic. Um, it goes without saying sort of thing. You know, you, 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 it really should be undertaken. But um, on the other hand, this isn't something that most... I wouldn't say anyone here besides me, and I don't know if, any, if there's another monk out there, but should, would be explicitly interested in. Um, but the point is to take whatever you're given. A lot of these have to do with that, uh, and that's why the ascetic practices, even though they're called ascetic, are still considered to be a part of the middle way, because they're not about torturing yourself. They're about forcing yourself to put up with, and up with is a huge part of the path and certainly well in line with the Buddhist teaching. So in this case, it's just about uh, taking on a routine that forces you to take whatever you get. It doesn't mean you're always going to get bad food. It just means you you can't, you aren't able to pick and choose. Just another means of keeping you from falling into partiality. So it was quite useful, and I would say this is one that most monks should should undertake when they do go on alms round. All right, am I up? I'm up. You are. All right, number five. The one sessioner's practice is undertaken with one of the following statements. I refuse eating in several sessions, or I undertake the one sessioner's practice. When the one sessioner sits down in the sitting hall, instead of sitting on an elder seat, he should notice when he, when uh, excuse me notice which seat is likely to fall to him and sit down on that. If his teacher or preceptor arrives while the meal is still unfinished, it is allowable for him to get up and do the duties. But the elder Tipitaka Kula Abahaya said he should either keep his seat and finish his meal, or if he gets up. He should leave the rest of his meal in order not to break the ascetic practice. And this one whose meal is still unfinished 
Therefore, let him do the duties, but in that case, let him not eat the rest of the meal. These are the directions. Okay, so this means not... Uh, this means eating one meal. This is the strict interpretation of eating one meal, where you you consider one meal to be whatever you eat while you're sitting on the same seat. So as soon as you stand up, you've broken, uh, you've you've left the meal. And so what it's talking about here is is a conflict with the practice of standing up when your teacher or preceptor enters the room, which is in the Vinaya. It's something you don't see many monks do nowadays, but it is what we have to do. And whenever, So whenever my preceptor enters the room, I do stand up. And this is uh, a part of our protocol. There's lots of little protocols like that, but this one, it gets in the way because, well, what if you're eating and he, he comes in uh, in the middle of your meal? And then, so some people say, it's fine, you can get up. And, you know, this is just a, it's an interesting example of uh, the some of the questions that monks have to ask. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. That's what it's here for. Uh, what's the difference between a teacher and a preceptor? Right. So these are official titles. Don't, don't let the word teacher fool you. It, it doesn't mean any teacher. It's a specific title, just as preceptor is. Preceptor is, the, is, is singular, of course. There's only one of them. You'll only ever have one preceptor unless you disrobe and ordain again. But teacher is some monk who has ten years. Well, the monk is still under five years as a monk. Uh, while someone is still not five years a monk, they have to take a. They have to be with a monk who is either a preceptor, either their, their preceptor, or a monk who is qualified to be their preceptor. And that monk who is qualified to be a preceptor is considered the te- is called a teacher. And so you take them as your teacher, you go on dependence on them. They have to be at least 10 years a monk and have several other qualifications that make them suitable. Uh, But you don't have to be with your preceptor the whole time, you just have to find some monk who fits the qualification and ask to go on dependence of them. During the time that you're in dependence on them, well, uh, you have to treat them basically like your preceptor and one of the protocols is as well standing up just as you would for your preceptor when they enter the room. Thank you. And the of, teachers, the... of course, it's also protocol in general if, to stand up if someone, to any, for anyone, is your teacher. But it's not really required. But it's it's you know, it's based on an Indian practice of standing up when your parents enter the room, standing up when your teacher enters the room, etc. And the teachers, do they are they called ajan? Ajan is a Thai corruption of the word acharya. The word is acharya. I, I, I did an article on my web blog a while back. I don't know if it's possible to find it, but I explained where the word comes from. Ajan is should only be used in the context of the Thai language. It's not a Buddhist word. It's a Thai word, and it just means teacher. They use it to talk about any teacher, uh, public school teachers, high school teachers, university professors, etc. Okay, thank you. It's got to be quite a dilemma, though. I mean, you're only eating one meal a day as it is, and then in the middle of the meal, your teacher walks in, and that's got to be tough. Yeah, well, it keeps you on your toes. I mean, that's that's why, for the most part, people would say, well, if your teacher comes in, uh, well, I guess there are two minds. One is you make an exception and you don't stand up, and the other is you, you stand up, but then you're allowed to sit back down and eat because it 
that's an exception, right? Yeah, that would make sense. Nicola, can you read 36? Maybe Nicola doesn't have a mic right now. Uh, I'll go with 36. This too has three grades. Herein, one who is strict may not take anything more than the food he has laid his hand on, whether it is little or much. And if people bring him ghee, etc., thinking the elder has nothing, while these are allowable for the purpose of medicine, they are not so for the purpose of food. The medium one may take more as long as the meal in the bowl is not exhausted for he is called one who stops when the food is finished. The mild one may eat as long as he does not get up from his seat. He is either one who stops with the water, because he eats until he takes water for washing the bowl, or one who stops with the session, because he eats until he gets up. The ascetic practice of these three is, for, is broken at the moment when the food has been eaten at more than one se session. This is the breach in this instance. Sanka, can you read 37? Yeah, sure. Uh, the benefits are these. He has little affliction and little sickness. He has lightness, strength, and a happy life. There's no contra contravening rules about food that is not what, what is left over from a meal. Craving for taste is eliminated. His life confirms to these principles of fewness of wishes and so on. Thank you. Zekwin, are you able to read 38? Me, right? Uh, yes, please. Can you hear me? Because I'm on mobile broadband, so it's not so clear, I guess. Oh, no, you're coming in fine. All right. Um, no illness due to eating shall he feel, who gladly in one session takes his meal, no longing to indulge his sense of taste, tempts him to leave his walk to go to waste, his own true happiness among may find in eating in one session pure in mind. Purity and effacement wait on this, for it gives reason to abide in bliss. This is the commentary on the undertaking, directions, great, breach, and benefits in the case of the one sessionist practice. Again, you got to hand it to the translator here for... Making poly, poly rhyme in English. It's amazing that they did this. This was the old style. You'll see a lot of this in the old translations, which they're now gradually phasing out. But this was sort of how they did it way back when. Quite a trick. Definitely. I mean, the poly is quite fluid, so it, it makes sense to try and make it fluid in the way we do in English. The Pali, if you read the Pali, it's it's not prose. A lot of it is, and it, but it's it's different. It's mostly not the uh, A B A B rhymes or the how do you say it A A. Yeah, it's mostly not the A B B or A B A B rhyme scheme. They don't rhyme the endings, but they do a, a, a lot of alliteration. Uh, 
and some rhyming, but in more intricate and more subtle. Bunte, can you read 39? Yes, ma'am. The bowl food eater's practice is undertaken with one of the following statements. I refuse a second vessel, or I undertake the bowl food eater's practice. When at the time of drinking rice gruel, a bowl food eater gets curry that is put in a dish. He can first either eat the curry or drink the rice gruel. If he puts it in the rice gruel, the rice gruel becomes repulsive. When a curry is made with cured fish, etc., when a curry made with cured fish, etc., is put in it, so it is allowable to do this only in order to use it without making it repulsive. Consequently, this is said with reference to such curry as that. But what is unrepulsive, such as honey, sugar, etc., should be put into it, and in taking it, he should take the right amount. It is allowable to take green vegetables with a hand and eat them, but unless he does that, they should be put into the bowl. Because a second vessel has been refused, it is not allowable to use anything else, not even the leaf of a tree. These are its directions. So this is simply a, ru a rule to only use one's alms bowl, to not have plates and dishes and, and or even banana leaves or etc. And so it's mainly to put all the food in the bowl and mix it up and and be content with it just as food, not as taste or this or that. But the point here being that if it's going to make you throw up because you put chocolate cake with fish sauce, um, uh, it's, it's cool to separate the two. The rice gruel in the time of the Buddha, I guess, was was mainly sweet, like we have rice pudding in the West. That actually makes it sound so much better than gruel. Well, the funny thing is, in most Buddhist countries, gruel is salty and mixed with fish sauce. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's an odd sort of statement to read as a, as a modern Buddhist. Thank you. Dar, can you read 40? Okay. This too has three grades. Herein, for one who is strict, uh, except at the time of eating guard sugar cane, sorry, uh, it is not allowed while eating to throw rubbish away, and it is not allowed while eating to break up rice lumps, fish, meat, and cakes, the rubbish should be thrown away and the rice lumps, etc., broken up before starting to eat. The medium one is allowed to break them up with one hand while eating, and he is called a hand ascetic. The mild one is called a bowl ascetic. Anything that can be put into his bowl, he is allowed while eating to break up, that is, rice lumps, etc., with the hand or such things as palm, sugar, ginger, etc., with his teeth. The moment any one of these three agrees to a second 
That's all. His ascetic practice is broken. This is the breach in this instance. The benefits are these. Craving for variety of tastes is eliminated. Excessiveness of wishes is abandoned. He sees the purpose and the right amount in nutriment. He is not bothered with carrying sources, etc. about. His life conforms to the principles of fewness of wishes and so on. He baffles doubt that might arise with extra dishes, downcast eyes, the true devotedness imply of one uprooting gluttony. Wearing content as if it were a part of his own nature, glad at heart, none but a bowl food eater may consume his food in such a way. This is the commentary on the undertaking, directions, grades, breach, and benefits in the case of the bowl food eater's practice. And uh, Bonte, I just wonder your uh, experience in this of detailed asceticism. Was that a question? Yeah, I was just, I was wondering, um, uh, did you take on one of these roles, uh, one of these grades, I guess? I have, I mean, well, f f eating from a, from my bowl only is, is a, quite a common occurrence. I don't do it here in the West, but I don't go on alms round here in the West either, so... Um, you know, it's not, we eat at tables, it's just a sort of an awkward situation right now, but, you know, whenever I'm in Asia, I mostly only eat out of my bowls. Many monks do it. It's not a, an uncommon thing, but I don't normally take the, the dutanga. I just don't, um, you know, a lot of them are I, I guess I mostly keep many of them, but it's not the same, you know. It's not a it's not a something that I'm stuck on, and that's the whole point of these is to force yourself to do that. It just isn't convenient for me, especially when teaching. You know, when teaching and traveling, there's a lot of exceptions that you have to make. It's hard enough just to keep the rules and to explain to people that you have to keep the rules. But if you had to explain to people, no, no, you have to put that food in my bowl, etc., etc. You know, it's um, it's a bit much. What did it mean about um, that you couldn't break up the for the the one that couldn't break the food with their hand? Yeah, it's funny. A lot of the grades don't have anything directly to do with the actual rule. But the point here is, the the spirit of this rule is to to get you to to just see it as food, not this kind of food or that kind of food. To have it all just one big lump of food, and all you do is eat it, that there's only one uh, one thing and it's that's food and you eat it. And so if you go about breaking stuff up, it's it's kind of detracts from that because you're still able, in your bowl, for example, you're still able to separate the food out into sections or, or you know, you're, you're able to eat one bit at a, at a time and it interrupts and it focuses on the types and qualities of food so 
they're add they're tacking that practice on. It's really just an add-on that um, that a- amplifies it and sort of makes it makes it more sincere because um, if it's, if if it's once it's all broken up, then you're really just eating food in the bowl. It's all there to eat lump by lump by lump. The idea would be you stir it all up. I think this is the one where you're supposed to just stir it all up and eat it. Okay, thank you. Jess, are you able to read 43? Okay, maybe it just doesn't have microphone. Laszlo, can you read 43? Sure. The later food refuser's practice is undertaken with one of the following statements. I refuse additional food or I undertake the later food refuser's practice. Now, when that... I'm sorry? Now, when that later food refuser has shown that he is satisfied, he should not again have the food made allowable by having it put into his hands according to the rule for bhikkhus and eat it. These are the directions for it. Thank you. Mark, can you read 44? Yep. This too has three grades. Herein, there is no showing that he has had enough with respect to the first lump but there is when he refuses more while that is being swallowed. So when one who is strict and thus and has thus shown that he has had enough with respect to the second lump, he does not eat the second lump after swallowing the first. The medium one eats also that food with respect to which he has shown that he has had enough but the mild one goes on eating until he gets up from his seat. The moment any one of these three has eaten, what has been made allowable again after he has shown that he has had enough, his ascetic practice is broken. This is the breach in this instance. The benefits are these. One of them is far from committing an offense concerned with extra food. There is no overloading of the stomach. There is no keeping food back. There is no renewed search for food. He lives in conformity with the principles of fewness of wishes and so on. The idea here is uh, the idea here is that you uh, eat only the food that you've gotten the first time. So it's not seeking out further food. The whole strict, medium, and and mild is a bit convoluted, but it has to do with um, what constitutes later food. So once you've decided that you haven't, you've you've had enough food. It's not exactly clear to me, but it uh, one one whether it's. Once you, so the strict person, once they've had one lump of food, that's considered to be a sign that they've got enough food. Right. So once they've taken the first lump of food, any other food that they're offered, they have to refuse if they want to keep this. And that happens often. Monks will be sitting eating and someone comes with more food. Well, that's not 
not appropriate according to this. The point is that you get your food first and you're content with that food and if someone brings better food, you don't eat that food. You only take uh, what's, what you've uh, started eating and and that that is when you've that is once you've taken your first lump. So the second one, the medium one, uh, yeah, not exactly clear, but uh, but the mild one means that uh, once you get up from your seat, then you can't accept later food. But as long as they offer it while you're sitting down, you can still accept it and not consider it later food. So then a lump wouldn't be considered like a handful or, or a spoonful. It's more like a serving? No, a lump is, is something that you put in your mouth. Once you take the first mouthful, once you put something in your mouth, you've considered to have started eating. And for the strict version of this, that's considered to be the point where you can no longer accept further food. The medium one, I'm not quite sure. I guess it's once you've made it known that you've got enough food. But the mild one... Uh, well, like once it was the medium one, it would be once someone brings you food and you say no, thank you, but that's because that's actually against rules or not one of the ascetic practices. So I'm not quite clear about that. But the mild one means it has nothing to do with mouth; it's seats. So their food. Okay, thank you. Hi, Richard. We are on page sixty-six. We're just going on to number forty-six now. Section 46. And Sanka, could you read, could you read 46? Yeah. Um, when a wise man refuses later food, he needs no extra search in weary mood, no stores up food till later in the day, no overloads his stomach in this way. So, would the adept from such faults abstain? Let him assume this practice for his gain. Pra uh, praised by the Blessed One, which will augment the special qualities such as content. Um, this is the commentary on the undertaking, directions, grades, breach, and benefits in the case of uh, the later food refuses practice. Thank you. Zikwin, can you read 47? Hi, I'm Haja. Um, the forest dwellers' practice is undertaken with one of the following statements. I refuse an abode in a village, or I undertake the forest dweller's practice. Now that forest dweller must leave an abode in a village in order to meet the dawn in the forest. Meaning one can go into the forest, but the, the night in Buddhism is considered to be the moment of dawn. So as long as you're back in the forest at the moment of dawn, you're considered to be dwelling in the forest. Herein, a village abode is the village itself with its precincts. A village may consist of one cottage or several cottages. It may be enclosed by a wall or not, have human inhabitants or not, and it can also be a caravan that, it is, that is inhabited for more than four months. The village precincts cover the range of a stone thrown by a man of medium stature standing between the gateposts of a walled village. If there are two gateposts, as at Anuradhapura, the Vinaya experts say that this stone's throw is characterized as up to the place where a stone thrown stone falls, 
as for instance when young men exercise their arms and throw stones in order to show off their strength. Oh boy, this is quite involved, no? But the Sutanta experts say that it is up to where one thrown to scare crows normally falls. In the case of an unwalled village, the house precinct is where the water falls when a woman standing in the door of the outermost house of all throws water from a basin. Within a stone's throw of the kind already described, from that point is the village. Within a second stone's throw is the village precinct. Got it? It's very, very precise. (laughs) It actually seems like a good idea not to... um be a monk within the uh, distance when someone can throw water from a basin. (laughs) Or throw a stone to show off your strength. Wait, you mean to get hit by the water or the stone? Buddha Dharma, are you, do you have a mic now? Are you able to read? They had a mic, but I muted them because they were echoing. Oh, okay. Okay, Dar, if you can uh, pick up with 49. I can read. Oh, okay, great. Um, Could you read 49 then? Forest, according to the Vinaya method, firstly is described thus. Except the village and its precincts, all is forest. According to the Abhidhamma method, it is described thus. Having gone out beyond the boundary post, all that is all that is forest. But according to the Sutanta method, its characteristic is this: a forest about is five hundred bow lengths distant. That should be defined by measuring it with the strung instructor's bow from the gateposts of a walled village, or from the range of the first stone's throw from an unwalled one up to the monastery wall. So that means about five hundred yards or meters. But if the monastery is not walled, it is said in the Vinaya commentary, commentaries, it should be measured by making the first dwelling of all the limit, or else the um, refectory or regular meeting place or Bodhi tree or shrine, even if that is far, from a dwelling belonging to the monastery, but in the Mahima commentary, it is said that omitting the precinct of the monastery and the village, the distance to be measured is that between where the two stones fall. This is the measure here. Don't ask me to explain that. Even if the village is close by and the sounds of men are audible to people in the monastery, still, if it is not possible to go straight to it because of rocks, rivers, etc. in between, the 500 bow lengths can be reckoned by that road even if one has to go by boat. But anyone who blocks the path to the village here and there for the purpose of lengthening it so as to be say that 
so as to be able to say that he is taking up the practice is cheating the ascetic practice. So if it's not clear, the point is that it's 500 meters, but if the path is curved, if it's a roundabout path, you can count 500 meters on the roundabout path. But then it says, but if you purposefully make the path roundabout, that's cheating. If a forest-dwelling bhikkhu's preceptor or teacher is ill and does not get what he needs in the forest, he should take him to a village abode and attend him there. But he should leave him in time to meet the dawn in a place proper for the practice. If the affliction increases towards the time of dawn, he must attend to him and not bother about the purity of his ascetic practice. These are the directions. Yeah, this one, uh, incidentally, this is something that the Buddha held to be important. This is another one that Mahakasapa was was good at. But the Buddha said this is something that leads to the longevity of the of the bhikkhu sangha, the um, contentment with forest abodes. It also is incidentally one of the five rules that Devadatta sought to have enforced. And the Buddha never enforced it. He never said that you have to live in the forest. And Devadatta asked the Buddha, or demanded that the Buddha instate it as a rule that monks live in the forest, uh, knowing that the Buddha would not approve because this was an optional. You know, can't expect everyone at all times to live in the forest. But it is um, it's part of the legacy of the monk to be content living at the root of a tree or at least in a secluded forest abode. Thank you. Laszlo, could you read 53? This too has three grades. Herein, one who is strict must always meet the dawn in the forest. The medium one is allowed to live in a village for the four months of the rains, and the mild one for the winter months too. If in the period defined any of these three goes from the forest and hears the Dhamma in a village abode, his ascetic practice is not broken if he meets the dawn there, nor is it broken if he meets it as he is on his way back after hearing the Dhamma. But if, when the preacher has got up, he thinks, we shall go after lying down a while, and he meets the dawn while asleep, or if, of his own choice, he meets the dawn while in a village abode, then his ascetic practice is broken. This is the breach in this instance. Again, showing that the Dhamma is more important than the Vinaya. And this is a sort of this is a theme that you see hinted at throughout, that uh, these can always be broken. Many of the rules in the Vinaya can be broken. And, well, not many, but there are some that you have extenuating circumstances, one of them being listening to the Dhamma. The benefits are these. A forest-dwelling bhikkhu who has given attention to the perception of forest can obtain hitherto unobtained concentration or uh, preserve that already obtained. And the master is pleased with him, according as it is said, so, Nagita, I am pleased with that bhikkhu's dwelling in the forest. And when he lives in a remote abode, his mind is not distracted by unsuitable 
visible objects, and so on. He is free from anxiety. He abandons attachment to life. He enjoys the taste of the bliss of seclusion and the state of the refuse rag wearer, etc., becomes him. Thank you, Mark. Richard, are you able to read 55? Yeah, sure. He lives secluded, secluded and apart, remote abodes delight his heart. The savior of the world, besides, he gladdens that, he gladdens that in groves abides. A hermit that in woods can dwell, alone may gain the bliss as well, whose, save, whose savor is beyond the price of royal bliss in paradise. Wearing the robe of rags, he may go forth in, into this, the <clears throat> go forth into the forest for it. Such is his mail for weapons too. The other practice will he, the other practices will do. One so equipped can be assured of rosing Maras and his horde. So let the forest glade delight a wise man for his dwelling site. That is the commentary on the undertaking, direction, grades, breach, and benefits in the case of the forest dwellers' practice. This remind me of that um, story about the 500 bhikkhus that was enlightened because they practiced in this forest and that there were like these earth-dwelling devas that didn't want them there. And then the Buddha taught them the um, the metta sutta, and they were able to gain insight there. Are you sure it was five hundred? I thought it was thirty or something. Um, I think it was less than that. <laughs> Sanka, Sanka, are you here? How many uh, was it? Nothing. How many um, was it for the metta sutta? Um, I can't recall. Nothing. Is this the incident where they stayed on top of a rock? No, where the the angels came down from the trees uh, because they they were upset because they had to leave the trees because of the monks, and so they oh, sc- yeah. they scared the monks. Right. Anyway, it's not important. Five hundred or thirty, who cares? But just stickler for details. <laughs> but yeah, can I ask a question about something prior? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's just been lingering in my mind. So I think someone said earlier that the Dhamma is more important than the Vinayana. The Vinaya, yes. So aren't they technically the same? No. Um, I, mean, I guess the... It depends what you mean by by Dhamma Vinaya, uh, and so it may have been a little bit uh, inexact to say that. But but the point is that these rules are um, not as not nearly as important as the practice of the Dhamma. But in in one level, the Vinaya simply means the abstention from evil, which of course is a part of the practice of good. They're one and the same. Um, but but Vinaya is generally understood to be rules, and so it was that that I was referring to when I said Vinaya. I mean, it depends how you interpret it. 
Oh, I see. Yeah, because I thought the Dhamma, you know, corresponds to just the teachings of the Buddha generally, and the Vinaya was this monastic code of ethics. If if that's, I mean, that is one way of of defining them. And if that's how you define them, then then I'd say yes, definitely the Dhamma is more important than the Vinaya. Oh, I see. Because um, I just thought because. That's that's interesting because I thought that, you know, I haven't actually read what the hundred and something, I forgot the exact number, rules are. And I'd like to, if someone has a link to that, if they could please send it uh, here, if they could post it. Because that the Vinaya is what seems unique and interesting because the fact that the monks are bound by so many rules, which, which, uh, uh, Yeah, which which um, creates a certain moral structure that I, I think is interesting. And Sanka just posted in chat that um, it actually was five hundred monks. So, huh? Shows what I know. That's okay because your students are learning too, so uh, it's all good. I actually got that from you, Bonte, because I was, um, that's what you said in one of the uh, Dhammapada videos, in one of the stories. You said it was 500-ish monks. Well, I actually copied it from uh, a newspaper uh, website, so uh, I don't know how accurate that is. But I guess it is correct. And I'm seeing on um, Access to Insight where it called, says a band of monks, which I think Access to Insight also has uh, pretty good copies of Vinaya. And if you're interested in just a, a general um, overview of the, the rules, there's a, an interesting um, text that's written. It's a PDF available online, and it's called the the monk's rules as explained to lay people or the monk's rules for lay people or something like that. And it's really interesting. It gives some of the background detail that explains how the rules originated and, and some practical um, advice on how to help a monastic, any monastic that you may be um, coming in contact with to understand what their rules are and why they're doing what they're doing. It's really interesting. So I think we're on 56 now. The tree root dweller's practice is undertaken with one of the following statements. I refuse a root, or I undertake the tree root dweller's practice. The tree root dweller should avoid such trees as a tree near a frontier, a shrine tree, a gum tree, a fruit tree, a bat's tree, a hollow tree, or a tree standing in the middle of a monastery. He can choose a tree standing on the outskirts of a monastery. These are the directions. Yeah, fruit tree, gum tree, because the fruit and the gum will fall on your head. I don't know what a gum tree is exactly, but I'm assuming there's something that will fall on your head. Bats, of course. Bats are awful to have above you. Hollow tree, because it can fall over. Tree standing in the middle of the monastery, because it's kind of cheating. You really thought everything through completely for these. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, this is what you do, but you've got a lot of time on your hands, I guess. But uh, it's interesting for us to have this resource, read it once. You don't have to pay too much attention to this, I suppose. But these are practical. I mean, it is, you do, 
when monks get together, they do have little tidbits like this to share the practicalities of keeping some of the rules and some of the practices. It's interesting to, to talk to monks. You, you get a lot of tips and pointers, kind of like soldiers. I suppose the army would probably be similar where the soldiers give each other tips and pointers that aren't in the rule books. Sanka, can you read 57? Yeah. Um, this has three grades too. Herein, one who is strict is not allowed to have a tree that had, that he has chosen, tied it up. Uh, he can move the fallen leaves uh, with his foot while uh, dwelling there. The medium one is allowed to get it tidied up by uh, those who happen to come along. The mild one can take up precedence there after summoning. After summoning uh, monastery attendants and novices and getting them to clear it up, level it, strew sand and make a fence round, make a fence round with a gate fixed in it. On a special day, a tree root dweller should sit in some some concealed place elsewhere rather than there. The moment any one of these three makes his abode under a roof, his ascetic practice is broken. The reciters of Anguttara say that it is broken as soon as he knowingly meets the dawn under a roof. This is the breach in this instance. Thank you. Sequin, can you read 58? Sure, thank you, Robin. The benefits are these. He practices in conformity with the dependence because of the words that going forth by depending on the root of a tree is an abode. It is a requisite recommended by the Blessed One thus, valueless, easy to get, and blameless. Perception of impermanence is aroused, though through seeing the continual alteration of young leaves, avarice about abodes and love of building work are absent. He dwells in the company of deities. He lives in conformity with the principles of fewness, of wishes, and so on. The Blessed One praised roots of trees as one of the dependencies. Can he that loves secludedness find such another dwelling place? Secluded as at the roots of trees and guarded well by deities, he lives in true devotedness nor covets any dwelling place. And when the tender leaves are seen, bright red at first, then turning green, and then to yellow as they fall, he sheds belief once and for all in permanence. Tree roots have been bequeathed by him, secluded seen. No wise man will disdain at all for contemplating rise and fall. This is the commentary on the undertaking, directions, grade, breach, and benefits in the case of the tree root dweller's practice. Okay, I'm going to suggest we stop there because we're going to have a ten-minute break, or five-minute break, I don't know, before we do the poly. Let's take at least a five-minute break, and we'll start. We'll start at five after. So, if you want to come back at two for Polly, we'll get that started at five after. But try to get everyone here, you know, sometime between two and five after two. Sounds good. Thank you, Bante. Yeah, so that was great. Thanks, everyone, for coming. You don't have to join this one if you just wanted to come for Polly. I know this is a larger group than we normally have, so. 
if you really just wanted to come for the Pali, you don't have to join. You can show up at two o'clock just for the Pali. It's not, this isn't, we're not going to, you know, be upset if you don't come to both. But uh, good to see people. If you really are interested in the Visuddhimagga, this is the worst part of it because it mostly has to do with monastic life, which may be interesting, I think, for many people is, but it's certainly not all that applicable. And it gets much more applicable as we get into the next sections. Anyway, I'm going to stop recording now.